Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And may you bless us through your words today as you speak to us in a living and active and personal way. Amen. Have you ever considered how many voices are speaking to you every day? Of course, uh, we interact regularly with friends and family, uh, classmates and co-workers, uh, but this is barely scratching the surface because there are many other voices which we interact with every day. Every day we are listening to the voices of television, of books, the voices of podcasts, the voices of music, or radio, or movies, or newspapers. Uh, if you're technically savvy, then Twitter feeds and Facebook streams and so on. Well, Psalm 19 speaks of two voices that warrant our primary attention. Uh, the voice about God in the creation and the voice of God in his word. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. The voice about God in creation and the voice of God in his word. So firstly, uh, the voice about God in creation. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this, as we've touched on this concept previously in one of our Psalms a couple of weeks ago. However, uh, it would be a travesty to skip over these majestic and famous opening verses of this Psalm. Now, it was a few weeks ago in Psalm 14 that we saw that those who say there is no God are fools. And we considered whether this was a little harsh. If you remember, we posed the question, uh, what if somebody genuinely believes in their heart that there is no God? Uh, wouldn't it be better to say that they are merely mistaken rather than saying that they are foolish? And if you remember, we answered that objection by going to Romans chapter 1. We saw that Romans 1 leaves us with no wriggle room at all. Romans 1 asserts that atheism is not an honest, sincere belief. Rather, atheism is grounded in a suppression of the truth. Uh, Romans 1 again, uh, verse 18. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What was the Apostle Paul thinking when he wrote this? Uh, what Old Testament scripture would have given Paul the guidance and the confidence to make such a bold statement? Well, it's fairly certain that Psalm 19 would have been foremost in his thoughts. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, 
their words to the ends of the earth. I found the, uh, one of the comments by one of the commentators, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, very helpful, uh, and I'll quote him uh, in full. He says this, Every individual part of nature testifies to its creator. If you look at the stars, they testify to a God of great power who made them. If you study the human body, you will find that the body testifies to an all-wise creator. The petals of a flower, a blade of grass, a snowflake, the intricacies of the atom, the nature of light, physical laws like gravitational attraction, the second law of thermodynamics. These all testify abundantly to a divine mind that lies behind them. To put it in other words, nature points to intelligent design. There is a God, a creator behind the creation. And of course, we are fools if we suppress this eloquent, testifying voice of creation. So we thought, firstly, of uh, the voice of, uh, about God in creation. Let's move on to the voice of God in his word. Because there is a transition then in Psalm 19, when it moves from this voice about God in the creation to the voice of of God in his word. And in this next section of the psalm, uh, there is a transition from general revelation to special revelation. Uh, the general revelation, of course, is nature, and that tells us that God is there, but it doesn't tell us how we can know this God. And for that, special revelation is required. Uh, God needs to speak, and we need to hear. Uh, significantly, in this next section of the psalm, there is a change in the Hebrew title for God. Now, in verses 1 to 6, uh, it is Elohim. Uh, if you're British, it's Elohim. And if you're uh, Hebrew and, and uh, Semitic, then it is Elohim. But Elohim or Elohim means Almighty God, the Mighty One. But now in verse 7, there is a transition to a different title for God. And instead of Elohim, the term Yahweh is used. And that's signified in the English text by uppercase, uh, the word Lord. Uh, last week, indeed, Rod helpfully picked up on this in Psalm 16. Uh, Yahweh is a personal, relational title for God. Uh, Yahweh speaks of the faithful God, who has established a covenant with his people. And so in verses 7 to 9, we see six different terms are used that refer to the words of Yahweh, a personal relational God. In verse 7, it says, uh, the law of the Lord it goes on to talk about the statutes of the Lord. Uh, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, uh, the commands of the Lord. Uh, verse 9, the fear of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord. Now, these are all different ways of referring to the voice of Yahweh in his word. And what we see in this psalm is that various benefits flow out of embracing Yahweh's word. And we're going to group them under three headings, a life, wisdom, 
and joy. So firstly, the benefits of life. Verse 7. The law of the Lord, Yahweh, is perfect, reviving the soul. And now when we hear the word law here, our minds immediately go to the Ten Commandments. However, the original Greek Hebrew word is Torah. And that word is much broader than this. At the root meaning of the word Torah is instruction. And it has to do, therefore, with everything that God has revealed and everything that God has said. So you see, it's much wider than just the Ten Commandments and the other legal code. And we can think of the law of Yahweh in terms of Scripture, uh, as we have recorded now in the Bible, God's Word. And we see here that God's Word is perfect. It revives the soul. Of course, at the point of conversion, God's Word grants life to the dead soul. And thereafter, God's Word revives the jaded soul. We all go through times, don't we, uh, when we are downcast and wrung out, when we feel jaded inwardly. And many of us have felt that very acutely over this last year. And it is God's Word, that is God's means of reviving and restoring our soul. So that's the first benefit, uh, life. Secondly, the benefit of wisdom. Not only does God's word foster life, but also dispenses wisdom. Look at verse 7. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now, as we've noted in recent sermons, uh, modern Western societies are hostile, of course, to any talk of absolute value or absolute truth. Uh, These days, people demand... uh, and to reserve the right to determine what is right and wrong for them. Uh, when preparing for today, I came across something very helpful in one of Tim Keller's sermons where he proposes uh, one of three E's that guides secular people's moral decision-making. One of three E's, that is either expectations, emotions, or ease. Uh, expectations, uh, it's that question, what does my peer group say? What do the experts say? What does society say? Uh, People are guided often in their moral decision-making by expectations, not by God's Word. Uh, Secondly, the second E was emotions. Uh, If it feels right, do it. People's moral decision-making is guided by emotions, not by God's Word. Third E, if you're following, ease. Uh, The path of least resistance. Uh, Which is the way of least confrontation? Uh, What is the way of least effort? People are guided these days in their moral decision-making, often by ease, not by God's Word. You see, the point is this. Pardon me. People prefer subjective values rather than absolute values. People prefer subjective values rather than absolute values. 
yet the statutes of the Lord, Yahweh, are born on a voice which is not in our world, but from outside of it. And it's not from amongst us, but from above us. And the voice of Yahweh is one that speaks an enduring and an absolute authority. It is a trustworthy voice. Again, verse 7, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So if we will trust the voice of Yahweh, we will find that it is trustworthy. It's a voice that will make us wise, even when it may run counter to what we feel in our emotions is the best path. And it's a voice that doesn't change over time. It doesn't bow to the societal whims or fads. Look at verse 9. Uh, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. You see, it's a voice on which we can depend. It's not fickle. And it's a voice that will illuminate the wisest path through the often confusing and dark aspects of life. Verse 8. The commands of the Lord Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Uh, of course, uh, God's statutes and commands act like the Creator's instruction manual for His creation. Uh, they reflect the unseen moral and spiritual laws that God has stitched into the fabric of reality. And of course, to act against God's commands is ultimately to damage ourselves and to incur breakdown and disintegration. You may recall in one of Tim Keller's talks, he referred to this and referenced and illustrated this with a fan heater. Uh, if you use a fan heater to heat up your bath water, things are not going to go well for you. Indeed, you'll die because that is not what the fan heater was designed to do. It's not using the fan heater in accordance with its manufacturer's designed intent. And so if we ignore the instruction manual of our creator, if we kick against it, if we reject its wisdom, ultimately we will incur breakdown and disintegration. For there is great wisdom in God's word. So we've seen life, uh, secondly, the benefits of wisdom, thirdly, the benefit of joy. Uh, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Also verse 10, uh, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Uh, the term precepts in verse 8 is another word for commands. The word of Yahweh is the best source of deepest and lasting joy. Here's the question. Why should God's commands give joy to the heart? Well, uh, there are two reasons in particular I'd put to you. Uh, firstly, Yahweh's commands show us the path to life. We've just seen this. Uh, we can live in tune with the structure of reality. They will bring us freedom to be and to live as we're supposed to live. But secondly, they also show us the path to 
God's heart. You see, God is not just the distant Elohim, the Almighty God, who is out there. He is the close and personal Yahweh, the personal, faithful, relational God who walks with his people. And as we know from our own human relationships, when we love somebody, we delight to please them. Uh, their wish is our command, and their command is our wish. And so too is it with God. Being in a loving relationship with Yahweh through faith in Christ makes all the difference. Remember Jesus' words in John 14, verse 15, he says this, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So you see, loving Christ transforms our view of God's commands. Uh, Yahweh's wishes are command, and Yahweh's commands are our wish. There is pleasure in giving God pleasure, just as we derive pleasure from giving those whom we love pleasure. And you see, our response to God's commands will reveal the true state of our hearts. Uh, in my preparation, I came across quite a helpful summary of this, uh, which I found to be quite profound. It says this, because it speaks of three different types of heart. Firstly, the immoralist, the person who wants to live a life as they see fit. The immoralist despises God's command. Uh, the moralist, the person who thinks the ticket to heaven is through keeping God's law, the moralist fears God's command. But the Christian, the one who knows that the only way for a loving relationship with God is through forgiveness through Christ, the Christian delights in God's command. Which are you? Uh, the immoralist who despises God's commands, the moralist who fears God's commands, or the Christian who delights in God's commands. But Psalm 19 doesn't break down into two sections, but actually three. Uh, there is the voice of creation about God. There is the voice of God in his word. But there is also a third section in verses 11 to 14. And here we see the psalmist's response to God's voice. And in these closing verses of the psalm, we get several clues as to the disposition of the psalmist's heart towards God and his word. Uh, did you notice how he describes himself in verse 11? He says this, by them is your servant warned. Uh, verse uh, 18, uh, 13, sorry, keep your servant also from willful sins. The psalmist is God's servant and therefore he is subservient to God's word. Notice also how he views his relationship with God. Look at verse 14. He says this, O Lord Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, God is his redeemer. The psalmist has a faith-based saving relationship with God. Uh, the psalmist is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament Christian the one who delights in God's commands. 
as a forgiven sinner, he now builds his life on God and his word as his foundational rock. And he recognizes the great benefits that flow from heeding the voice of God in his word. Look at verse 11 again. Uh, By them, by God's commands, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Did you notice also how he is humbled and convicted by God's word? Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servants also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. He is the Old Testament believer who continues to throw himself on God's mercy where he falls short of God's commands. So a few words in closing as we continue to think about our response to God's voice in his word. Firstly, what if you realize that you fall into the category of a moralist this morning? Uh, Up to this point, you've seen no need for faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, You would define a Christian as somebody who does their best in keeping God's law. Uh, Your hope is that entry to heaven will be granted because you have tried your best to live a good life. Well, before God's law can ever be a light to guide us, God's law must first operate as a standard to convict us. You see, if we only use God's word as the creator's instruction manual for his creation, we have missed the point. You see, God's commands first function to show us our failure to keep them. And the psalmist was all too aware of that. They expose our need for forgiveness. And they point us to faith in Christ as our rock and our redeemer. Galatians 3 verse 23 summarizes it like this. Before this faith came, speaking of faith in Christ, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So if you have not yet put your faith in Christ as your redeemer and your rock, why not do so today? Because, of course, it is the wisest decision you can ever make. And moralism won't save you, but Christ will. What about for those of us who are in a relationship of faith with Christ as our rock and our redeemer? Well, I'm going to reflect in three areas, thinking firstly about our life together as a church, secondly, a life together in families, and our life and Christian walk as individuals. So firstly then, church, as we enter this new year, uh, let's resolve to keep God's word at the center of our church life and our community this year. Uh, It's wonderful that today we've announced the the sign-up groups for home groups. And that is a wonderful way to engage together in God's Word and to help each other. So please do, if you've not yet, uh, signed up to a home group. 
Uh, and if you're not able to meet in person in a home group, of course, now we have the technology to enable that to be possible uh, through Zoom. So I know some groups operated last year as hybrids uh, with some joining through Zoom and others being physically present. So please don't exclude yourself from a home group uh, if you think you can't physically be there. Uh, register your intention and we'll see what you can do. So secondly, uh, our families. Uh, let's think about how we can keep God's word central to our family life. Now the question is this, uh, what structures or rhythms can we set in place to help us to engage in our families more deeply with God's word this year? Uh, speaking personally, uh, looking over this last year, we had some success with our kids, uh, helping them engage in scripture memory. Uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, please talk to me. However, we have found that the challenge is to keep that up. It is difficult to maintain that focus. What we have found difficult in this last year, uh, speaking of myself and Tracy, is to keep our kids regularly reading their Bibles. Uh, we have felt tired and lacking in energy. And the question is, how can we regain that healthy focus? And so, uh, I would encourage us to talk about this together. Uh, let us share together our experience of this and our resources we can use and what structures and rhythms we have found helpful. Let us work together as a community to encourage each other in our families to continue to engage deeply with God's Word. And then finally, individually. Uh, is God's Word our delight as it was for the psalmist? Or have we become jaded in our soul? Uh, we may need God's Word to revive our soul. Uh, John Piper has this to say, and I quote in full. He says this, uh, normal Christian life is a repeated process of restoration and renewal. Our joy is not static. It fluctuates with real life. Our adversary, the devil, has an insatiable appetite to destroy one thing, the joy of faith. But the Holy Spirit has given us a shield called faith and a sword called the Word of God and a power called prayer to defend and to extend and grow our joy. So the question is this, uh, how can we more deeply value God's Word? Uh, speaking personally, as a person who does not have a sweet tooth, uh, the analogy in the psalm of God's Word being sweeter than honey does not really work for me. I think, so what? However, being more precious than fine gold, well, that maybe gets a bit more traction. The question is this, uh, what do I read first thing in the morning? And if I'm obvious, uh, if I'm honest, uh, generally, uh, the thing I would go to would be to read the news and the stock market news. Uh, should it not be God's Word? And so I'm making a habit at the moment and ask me, please, if I can maintain this, of saying, no, first thing in the morning, I'm not going to go to the news. I'm not going to go to the stock market news. I'm going to read God's Word first. And that is a really healthy thing to do. The question is, is there scope for all of us establishing more healthy rhythms by reading God's Word? Uh, anyone else dropping off? 
is there scope for establishing more healthy rhythms by reading God's Word first thing in the morning and last thing at night? Uh, I've discovered uh, on Bible Gateway, which is an app you can download on your phones, that it has an audio Bible section in it. And if you like uh, the actor's voice, David Suchet, then if you go to the NIV UK version, David Suchet has put the whole Bible, he's read it all out and recorded it. So you can listen to David Suchet last thing at night before you go to bed as he reads God's word to you and as he lulls you to sleep with those lovely dulcet tones. So that's what Tracy and myself have been doing of recent times. Last thing at night, David Suchet, there's three of us in the room and we go to bed listening to God's word. Let's think about how we can establish healthy rhythms which enable us to engage with God's word. And the question I need to keep asking myself of my own heart is, and I've spoken about this before, where am I doubting God's word in my heart? It's one thing to know God's word in my brain, intellectually, but how does it operate in my heart functionally? Do I functionally doubt God's word and its wisdom? Because as Psalm 19 reminds us, God's word is perfect and trustworthy. It is pure and sure and altogether righteous. So, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Heavenly Father, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'm going to close in prayer and then I'll open up for time of comments and questions. So, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we see the voice of creation, which speaks of you and your reality and your existence and your power and majesty. But wonderfully, we have your word preserved for us in written form in the Bible. We thank you that your spirit speaks to us in a living, active way. Thank you for the purity and perfection of your word, that it is something that is absolutely trustworthy Help us, therefore, to continue to grow in our functional faith, in our hearts, not just in our minds, as we live out your word every day, engaging with that wisdom, embracing it, especially where it runs counter to how we feel or our own wisdom. Help us to love it, embrace it, and trust it, and to flourish in it, we pray, and through it, both in our church, in our families, and individually in our walks of life. Amen.